Hello and welcome to another episode of Rick's Journey. Today I would like to talk about a book I have uh, almost finished. It is called The Power of Now by Erhard Toel. And it's a New York Times bestseller, I think back in 2002 or, or something like that. And it's a spiritual guidance book, uh, very informative. I do rather enjoy it. Alrighty, let's get to it. Uh, let's start off with chapter one. You are not your mind. The greatest obstacle to enlightenment. Enlightenment, what is that? A beggar had been sitting by the side of the road for over 30 years. One day, a stranger walked by. Spare some change, mumbled the beggar, mechanically holding out his old baseball cap. I have nothing to give you, said the stranger. Then he asked, what's that you're sitting on? Nothing, replied the beggar, just an old box. I have been sitting on it for as long as I can remember. Ever looked inside, asked the stranger. No, said the beggar. What's the point? There's nothing in there. Have a look inside, insisted the stranger. The beggar managed to pry open the lid. With astonishment, disbelief, and elation, he saw the box was filled with gold. I am that stranger who has nothing to give you and who is telling you to look inside. Not inside any box as in the parable, but somewhere even closer, inside yourself. But I am not a beggar, I can hear you say. Those who have not found their true wealth, which is the radiant joy of being, and the deep, unshakable peace that comes with it, are beggars. Even if they have great material wealth, they are looking outside for scraps of pleasure or fulfillment, for validation, security, or love, while they have a treasure within that not only includes all those things, but is infinitely greater than anything the world can offer. The world enlightenment conjures up the idea of some superhuman accomplishment, and the ego likes to keep it that way, but it's simply your natural state of felt oneness with being. It is a state of connectedness with something immeasurable and indescribable, something that almost paradoxically is essentially you and yet is much greater than you. It is finding your true nature beyond name and form. The inability to feel this connectedness gives rise to the illusion of separation from with yourself and from the world around you. You then perceive yourself, consciously or unconsciously, as an isolated fragment. Fears arise and conflict within and without becomes the norm. All of the Buddha's simple definition of enlightenment as the end of suffering. There is nothing superhuman in that, is there? Of course, as a definition, it is incomplete. It only tells you what enlightenment is not, no suffering. But what is left, there is no more suffering. But what's left when there is no more suffering? The Buddha is silent on that. His silence implies that you will have to find out for yourself. He uses a negative definition so that the mind cannot make it into something to believe in or into a superhuman accomplishment, a goal that is impossible for you to attain. Despite this precaution, the majority of Buddhists still believe that enlightenment is for the Buddha, not for them, at least not in this lifetime. You use the word being. Can you explain what you mean by that being is the eternal ever-present one life beyond the myriad forms of life that are subject to birth and death 
However, being is not only beyond, but also deep within every form as it is in innermost of invisible and indestructible essence. This means that it is accessible to you now as your, as you, your own deepest self, your true nature. But don't seek to grasp it with your mind. Don't try to understand it. You can only know it when the mind is still. You are present when you are present. When your attention is fully and intensely in the now, being can be felt, but it can never be understood mentally. To regain awareness of being and to abide in that state of feeling realization is enlightenment. As I read on this book, there are parts in the book that makes you uh, really digest what you just read and understand if you need to read back into it. This book is very great because it gives you questions that you might want to ask the author. And so he answers it himself. I digress. When you, when you say being, are you talking about God? If you are, then why don't you just say it? The word God has become empty of meaning through thousands of years of misuse. I use it sometimes, but I do so sparingly. By misuse, I mean that people who have never even glimpsed the realm of the sacred, the infinite vastness behind that word, use it with great conviction as if they knew what they are talking about or they argue against it as if they knew what it is they are, they are denying. Thus, misuse give rise to absurd beliefs, assertions, and eoic delusions, such as my or our God is the only true God, and your God is false, or Nesetek's famous statement, God is dead. The word God has become a close concept. The moment the word is uttered, a mental image is created, no longer perhaps of an old man with a white beard, but still a mental representation of someone or something outside you, and yes, almost inevitably a male someone or something. Neither God nor being nor any other word can define or explain the infamable reality behind the word. So the only important question is whether the word is a help or hindrance in enabling you to experience that towards which it is that towards which it points. Does it point beyond self? To that transitional realm or reality or does it lead itself to easily to become no more than an idea in your head that you believe in a mental idol the word being explains nothing but nor does god being however has an advantage that is an open concept it does not reduce the infinite invisible to a finite entity it is impossible to form a mental image of it nobody can claim exclusive possessions of being it is your very essence it is immediately accessible to you as the feeling of your own presence the realization i am that is prior to i am this or i am that so it is only a small step from the word being to experience of being uh, okay, and there's another pause. What is the greatest obstacle to experience this reality? Identification with your mind, which causes thought to become compulsive. Not to be able to stop thinking is a dreadful affliction, but we don't realize this because almost everybody is suffering from it, so it is considered normal. 
this instance mental noise prevents you from finding that realm of inner stillness that is inseparable from being it also creates a false mind-made self that casts a shadow of fear and suffering we will look at all that in more detail later the philosopher Kretz believed that he had found the most fundamental truth when he had made his famous statement i think therefore i am he had, in fact, given expression to the most basic error, to equate thinking with being and identity with thinking. The compulsive thinker, which means almost everyone, lives in a state of apparent separateness in an insanely complex world of continuous problems and conflicts, a world that reflects the ever-increasing fragmentation of the mind. Enlightenment is a state of wholeness, of being at one and therefore at peace at one with your life in its manifested aspects the world as well as your deepest self and self unmanifested at one with being enlightenment is not only the end of suffering and of continuous conflict within and without but also the end of the dreadful enslavement to instant thinking what an incredible liberation this is identification with your mind creates an a epic scene of concepts, labels, images, words, judgments, and definitions that block all true relationships. It comes between you and yourself, between you and your fellow man and woman, between you and nature, between you and God. It is this screen of thought that creates the illusion of separateness, the illusion that there is you and a totally separate other you then forget the essential fact that underneath the level of physical appearances and separate forms you are one with all that is by forget i mean that you can no longer feel this oneness as self-evident reality you may believe it to be true but you no longer know it to be true a belief may be comforting only through your own experience however does it become liberating thinking has become a disease Disease happens when things get out of balance. For example, there is nothing wrong with cells dividing and multiplying in the body, but when this process continues in disregard of the total organism, cells proliferate and we have a disease. The mind is a superb instrument if used rightly. Used wrongly, however, it becomes a very destructive. To put it more accurately, it is not so much that you use your mind wrongly. You usually don't use it at all. It uses you. This is the disease. You believe that you are your mind. This is the delusion. The instrument has taken you over. I don't quite agree. Is it true that I do a lot of aimless thinking like most people, but I can still choose to use my mind to get and accomplish things? I do that all the time. Just because you can solve a crossword puzzle or build an atom bomb doesn't mean that you, you use your mind. Just as dog loves to chew bones, the mind loves to get its teeth into problems. That's why it does. Well, that's why it does crossword puzzles and builds atom bombs. You have no interest in either. Let me ask you this: Can you be free of your mind whenever you want to? Have you found the off button? You mean stop thinking altogether? No, I can't, except maybe for for a moment or two, and then the mind is using you. You are unconsciously identified with it, so you don't even know that you are its slave. It's almost as if you were possessed without knowing it, and so you take the pos 
possession entity to be yourself. The beginning of freedom is the realization that you are not the possessing entity, the thinker. Knowing this enables you to observe the entity. The moment you start watching the thinker, a higher level of consciousness becomes activated. You then begin to realize that you are you begin to realize that there is a vast realm of intelligence beyond thought that thought is only a tiny aspect of the intelligence you also realize that all things that truly matter beauty love creativity joy inner peace arise from beyond the mind you begin to awaken freeing yourself from your mind what exactly do you mean by watching the thinker? When someone goes to a doctor and says, I hear a voice in my head, he or she will most likely be sent to a psychiatrist. The fact is, the fact is that in a very similar way, virtually everyone hears a voice or several voices in their head at all time. The involuntary thought process that you don't realize you have the power to stop. Continuous monologues or dialogues. You have probably come across mad people in the street insistently talking or muttering to themselves. Well, that's not much different from what you and all other normal people do, except that you don't do it out loud. The voice comments, speculates, judges, compares, complains, likes, dislikes, and so on. The voice isn't necessarily relevant to the situation you find yourself in at the time. It may be reviving the recent or distant past or rehearsing or imagining possible future situations. Here, it often Im imagines things going wrong and negative outcomes. This is called worry. Sometimes this soundtrack is accompanied by visual images or mental movies. Even if the voice is relevant to the situation at hand, it will interpret it in terms of the past. This is because the voice belongs to your con conditioned mind which is a result of all your past history as well as a collective culture mindset you inherited. So you see and judge the present through the eyes of the past and get a total distorted view of it. It is not uncommon for the voice to be a person's own worst enemy. Many people live with a tormentor in their head that continuously attacks and punishes them and drains them of vital energy. It is the cause of untold misery and unhappiness as well as of disease. The good news is that you can free yourself from your mind. This is the only true liberation. You could take the first step right now. Start listening to the voice in your head as often as you can. Pay particular attention to any repetitive thought patterns, those old gramophone records that have been playing in your head perhaps for many years. This is what I mean by watching the thinker, which is another way of saying, listen to the voice in your head. Be there as the witnessing presence. When you listen to that voice, listen to it impartially. That is to say, do not judge. Do not judge or condemn what you hear, for doing so would mean that the same voice has come in again through the back door. You'll soon realize there is a voice, and here I am listening to it, watching it. This I am realization, this sense of your own presence, this is not a thought. It arises from beyond the mind. So... When you listen to a thought, you are aware not only of the thought, but also of yourself as a witness of the thought. 
a new dimension of consciousness has come in. As you listen to the thought, you feel a conscious presence in your deeper self, behind or underneath the thought, as it were. The thought then loses its power over you and quickly subsides because you are no longer energizing the mind through identif identification with it. This is the beginning of the end of involuntary compulsive thinking. When a thought subsides, you experience a discontinuity in the mental steam, a gap of no mind. At first, the gaps will be short, a few seconds perhaps, but gradually they will become longer. When these gaps occur, you feel a certain stillness and peace inside you. This is the beginning of your natural state of felt oneness with being, which is usually obscured by the mind. With practice, the sense of stillness and peace will deepen. In fact, there is no end to its depth. You will also feel a subtle emanation of joy arising from deep within the joy of being. It is not a trance-like state, not at all. There is no loss of consciousness here. The opposite is, is the case. If the price of peace were a lowering of your consciousness and the price of stillness a lack of vitality and alertness, then they would not be worth having. In this state of inner connectedness, you are much more alert, more awake than in the middle, in the mind-identified state. You are fully present. It also rises the vibrational frequency of the energy field that gives life to the physical body. As you go more deeply into this realm of no mind, as it is sometimes called in the East, you realize the state of pure consciousness. In that state, you feel in your own presence with such intensity and such joy that all thinking, all emotions become relatively insignificant in comparison to it. And yet, this is not a selfish but selfless state. It takes you beyond what you previously thought as yourself. That presence is essentially you and at the same time inconceivably greater than you. What I am trying to convey here may sound paradox paradoxical or even contradictory, but there is no other way that I can express it. Instead of watching the thinker, you can also create a gap in the mind steam by simply directing the focus of your attention into the now. Just become intensely conscious of the present moment. This is a deeply satisfying thing to do. And this way, you draw consciousness away from the mind activity and create a gap of no mind in which you are highly alert and aware, but not thinking. This is the essence of meditation. In your everyday life, you can practice this by taking any routine activity that normally is only a means to an end and give it to your fullest attention so that it becomes an end in itself. For example, every time you walk up, up and down the stairs of your house or a place of work, pay close attention to each step, every movement, even your breathing. Be totally present. Or when you wash your hands, pay attention to all the sen senses perceptions associated with the activity, the sound and the feel of the water, the movement of your hands, the scent of the soap, and so on. Or when you get into your car after you close the door, pause a few seconds and observe the flow of your breath. Become aware of a silent but powerful sense of presence. There is one certain citratrone by which you can measure your success in this practice, the degree of peace you feel within. So, the single most vital step on your journey towards enlightenment 
is this. Learn to disidentify from your mind. Every time you create a gap in the stream of the mind, the light of consciousness grows stronger. One day you may catch yourself smiling at the voice in your head as you would smile at the antics of a child. This means that you no longer take the content of your mind all that seriously as your sense of self does not depend on it. Enlightenment, arising above thought. Isn't thinking essentially in order to survive in this world? Your mind is an instrument, a tool. It is there to be used for a specific task, and when the task is complete, you lay it uh, you lay it down. As it is, I would say about 80 to 90 percent of most people's thinking is not only repetitive and useless, but because of this dysfunctional and often negative nature, much of it is also harmful. Observe your mind and you will find this to be true. It causes a serious leakage of vital energy. This kind of compulsive thinking is actually an addiction. What characterizes an addiction? Quite simply this. You no longer feel that you have the choice to stop. It seems stronger than you. It also gives you a false sense of pleasure. Pleasure that inevitably turns into pain. Why should we be addicted to thinking? Because you are identified with it, which means that you derive yourself, your sense of self from the content and activity of your mind. Because you believe that you would cease to be if you stopped thinking. As you grow up, you form a mental image of who you are based on your personal and cultural conditioning. We may call this phenomenon self the ego. It consists of mind activity and can only be kept going through constant thinking. The term ego means different things to different people, but when I use it here, it means a false self created by unconscious identification with the mind. To the ego, the present moment hardly exists. Only past and future are concerned, considered important. This total reversal of the truth accounts for the fact that in the ego mode, the mind is so dysfunctional. It is always concerned with keeping the past alive because without it, who are you? It constantly projects itself into the future to ensure its continued survival and seeks some kind of a release or fulfillment there. It says, one day when this, that, or the other happens, I am going to be okay, happy, at peace. Even when the ego seems to be concerned with the present, it is not the present that it sees. It mis perceives it completely because it looks at it through the eyes of the past or it reduces the present to a means to an end an end that always lies in the middle in the mind projected future observe your mind and you'll see this is how it works the present moment holds the key to liberation but you cannot find a present moment as long as you are your mind i don't want to lose my ability to analyze and discriminate i wouldn't mind learning to think more clearly in a more focused way but i don't want to lose my mind the gift of thought is the most precious thing we have without it we would just be another species of animal the predominance of mind is no more than a stage in the evolution of consciousness we need to go on to the next stage now as a matter of urgency Otherwise, we will be destroyed by the mind, which has grown into a monster. I will talk about this in more detail later. Thinking and consciousness are not synonymous. 
thinking is only a small aspect of consciousness. Thought cannot exist without consciousness, but consciousness does not need thought. Enlightenment means rising above thought, not falling back to a level below thought, the level of an animal or a plant. In the enlightened state, you still use your thinking mind when needed, but in a much more focused and effective way than before. You use it mostly for practical purposes, but you are free from uh, involuntary internal dialogue and there is inner stillness. When you use your mind and particularly when uh, a creative solution is needed, you oscillate every few minutes or so between thought and stillness, between mind and no mind. No mind is consciousness without thought. Only in that way it is possible to think creatively because only in that way does thought have any real power thought alone when it is no longer connected with the much vaster realm of consciousness quickly becomes barren insane destructive the mind is essentially a survival machine attack and defense against other minds gathering storings and analyzing information this is what it's good at but it is not at all creative all true artists, whether they know it or not, create a place of no mind from inner stillness. The mind then gives form to the creative impulse or insight. Even the great scientists have reported that their great breakthroughs, creative breakthroughs came at a time of mental quietude. The surprising results of a nationwide inquiry among Americans most Im most uh, ma mathematicians include Einstein to find out the working methods was that thinking plays only a substitute part of the brief decisive phase of created theft itself. So I would say that the simple reason why the majority of scientists are not creative is not because they don't know how to think, but because they don't know how to stop thinking. It wasn't through the mind, through thinking, that the miracle that is life on earth or your body was created and is being sustained. There is clearly an intelligence at work that is far greater than the mind. How can a single human cell measure one one thousandth of an inch in diameter containing instructions within its DNA that would fill one thousand books of six hundred pages each? The more we learn about the workings of the body, the more we realize just how vast is the intelligence at work within and how little we know. When the mind reconnects with that, it becomes a most wonderful tool. It then serves something greater than itself. Emotions. The body's reaction to your mind. What about emotions? I get caught up in my emotions more than I do in my mind. Mind, in a way, I use the word, is not just thought. It includes your emotions as well as all unconscious, mental, emotional, reactive patterns. Emotions arise at the place where mind and body meet. It is the body's reaction to your mind, or you might say, a reflection of your mind in the body. For example, an attack thought or a hostile thought will create a buildup of energy in the body that we call anger. The body is getting ready to fight. The thought that you are being threatened physically or psychologically causes the body to contract. This is the physical side uh, of what we call fear. Research has shown that strong emotions even cause changes in the biochemistry of the body. These biochemical changes represent the physical or material aspects of the emotion. 
Of course, you are not usually conscious of your thought patterns, and it is often only through watching your emotions that you can bring them into awareness. The more you identify with your thinking, the likes and dislikes, judgments and interception, in, interpreta interpretations, which is to say, the less present you are as the watching consciousness, the stronger the emotional energy charge will be, whether you are aware of it or not. If you cannot feel your emotions, if you are caught off from them, you will eventually experience them on a purely physical level, as a physical problem or symptom. A great deal has been written about this in recent years, so we don't need to go into it here. A strong, unconscious emotional pattern may even manifest as an external event that appears to just happen to you. For example, I have observed that people who carry a lot of anger inside without being aware of it and without expressing it are more likely to be attacked, verbally or even physically, by other angry people and often for no apparent reason. They have strong emanation of anger that certain people pick up sublimely, and that triggers their own Latin anger. If you have difficulty feeling your emotions, start by focusing attention on the inner energy fields of your body. Feel the body from within. This will also put you in touch with your emotions. We will explore this in more detail later. You say that an emotion is the mind's reflection in the body. But sometimes there is a conflict between the two. The mind says no while the emotion says yes or the other way around. If you really want to know your mind, the body will give you a truthful reflection. So look at the emotion or rather feel it in your body. If there is an apparent conflict between them, the thought will be the lie. The emotion will be the truth. Not the ultimate truth of who you are, but the relevant truth of your state of mind at the time. Conflict between surface thoughts and unconscious mental process is certainly common. You may not yet be able to bring the unconscious mind activity into awareness as thoughts, but it will always be reflected in the body as emotion, and, this, and of this you can become aware. To watch an emotion in this way is basically the same as listening to or watching a thought, which I described earlier. The only difference is that while a thought is in your head, an emotion has a strong physical component and so is primarily felt in the body. You can then allow the emotion to be there without being controlled by it. You no longer are the emotion. You are the watcher, the observing presence. If you practice this, all this unconscious in you will be brought into the light of consciousness. So observing our emotions is as important as observing our thoughts. Yes, make it a habit to ask yourself, what is going inside me at this moment? That question will point you in the right direction, but don't analyze it. Just watch. Focus your attention within. Feel the energy of emotion. If there is no emotion present, take your attention more deeply into the inner energy field of your body. It is the doorway into being. An emotion usually represents an amplified and energized thought pattern, and because of its often overpowering energetic charge, it is not easily initially to stay present enough to be able to watch it. It wants you to take over, and it usually succeeds, unless there is enough presence in you. If you are pulled into unconscious identification with the emotion through lack of presence, which is normal, the emotion temporarily becomes you. 
Often a vicious cycle builds up between your thinking and the emotion. They feed each other. The thought pattern creates a magnified reflection of itself in the form of an emotion and the vibrational frequency of the emotion keeps feeding the original thought pattern. By dwelling mentally on the situation, event, or person that is perceived cause of the emotion, the thought feeds energy into the emotion which in turn energizes the thought pattern and so on. Basically, all emotions are modifications for of one primordial undifferentiated emotion that has its origin in the loss of awareness of who you are beyond name and form. Because of its indifferentiated nature, it is hard to find a name that precisely describes this emotion. Fear comes close, but apart from a continuous sense of threat, it also includes a deep sense of abandonment and incompleteness. It may be best to use a term that is as undifferentiated as the basic emotion and simply call it pain. One of the main tasks of the mind is to fight or remove the emotional pain, which is one of the reasons for its necessity activity, but it can never achieve it, so cover it up temporarily. In fact, the harder the mind struggles to get rid of the pain, the greater the pain. The mind can never find the solution, nor can it afford to allow you to find the solution because it, it's, it is itself an interesting part of the problem. Imagine a chief of police trying to find an arsonist when the arsonist is the chief of police. You will not be freed of that pain until you cease to derive your sense of self from identification with the mind, which is to say from ego. The mind is then toppled from its place of power and being re reveals itself as your true nature. Yes, I know what you are going to ask. I was going to ask, what about positive emotions such as love and joy? They are inseparable from your nature, natural state of inner connectedness with being. Glimpses of love and joy or brief moments of deep peace are possible whenever a gap occurs in a stream of thought. For most people, such gaps happen rarely and only accidentally in moments when the mind is rendered speechless, sometimes triggered by great beauty, extreme physical exertion, or even great danger. Suddenly there is an inner stillness, and within that stillness there is a subtle but intense joy. There is love. There is peace. Usually such moments are short-lived as the mind quickly resumes its noise-making activity that we call thinking. Love and joy and peace cannot flourish until you have freed yourself from mind dominance, but they are not what I would call emotions. They lie beyond the emotions on a much deeper level, so you need to become fully conscious of your emotions and be able to feel them before you can feel that which lies beyond them. Emotion literally means disturbance. The word comes from the Latin emovere, meaning to disturb. Love, joy, and peace are deep states of being, or rather, three aspects of the state of interconnectedness with being. As such, they have no opposite. This is because they arise from beyond the mind. Emotions, on the other hand, being part of the dualistic mind are subtle to the laws of opposites. This simply means that you cannot have good without bad. So in the enlightened mind-identified condition, what is something wrongly called joy is the usually short-lived pleasure side of the continuous alternating pain-pleasure cycle. 
pleasure is always derived from something outside you, whereas joy arises from within. The very thing that gives you pleasure today will give you pain tomorrow, or it will leave you, so its absence will give you pain. And what is often referred to as love may be pleasurable and exciting for a while, but is an addictive, clinging, and extremely needy connect condition that can turn into its opposite at the flick of a switch. Many love relationships, after the initial euphoria has passed, actually oscillates between love and hate, attractions and attack. Real love doesn't make you suffer. How could it? It doesn't suddenly turn into hate, nor does real joy turn into pain. As I said, even before you are enlightened, before you have freed yourself from your mind, you may have get glimpses of true joy, true love, or a deep inner peace, still but vibrantly alive. These are aspects of your true nature, which is usually obscured by the mind. Even within a normal, addictive relationship, there can be moments when the presence of something more genuine, something incorruptible, can be felt. But they will only be glimpses, soon to be covered up again through mind interference. It may be... It may then seem that you had something very precious and lost it, or your mind may convince you that it was an illusion. It was all an illusion anyway. The truth is that it wasn't an illusion. You cannot lose it. This is a part of your natural state, which can be obscured but can never be destroyed by the mind. When the sky is heavenly, heavily overcast, the sun hasn't disappeared. It's still there on the other side of the clouds. The Buddha says that pain or suffering arises through desire or craving and that to be free of pain we need to cut the bonds of desire. All craving are the mind seeking salvation or fulfillment in external things and in the future as a substitute for the joy of being. As long as I am my mind, I am those cravings, those needs, wants, attachments, aversions apart from them there is no i except a, as a mere possibility an unfulfilled potential a seed that has not yet sprouted in that state even my desire to become free or enlightened is just another craving for fulfillment or completion in the future so don't seek to become free of desire or achieve enlightenment be become present be there as the observer of the mind Instead of quoting the Buddha, be the Buddha, be the awakened one, which is what the word Buddha means. Humans have been in the grip of pain for eons, ever since they fell from the state of grace, entered the realm of time and mind, and lost awareness of being. At that point, they started to perceive themselves as meaningless fragments in an alien universe, unconnected to the source and to each other. Pain is inevitable as long as you are identified with your mind, which is to say as long as you are unconscious spiritually speaking. I am talking here primarily of emotional pain, which is also the main cause of physical pain and physical disease. Resentment, hatred, self-pity, guilt, anger, depression, jealousy, and so on, even the slightest irritation are all forms of pain. And every pleasure or emotional high contains within itself the seed of pain, its inseparable opposite, which will manifest in time. Anybody who has ever taken drugs to get high will know that the high eventually turns into a low, and that pleasure turns into some form of pain. 
many people also know from their own experience how easily and quickly an intimate relationship can turn from a source of pleasure to a source of pain. Seen from a higher perspective, both the negative and the positive polarities are faces of the same coin. Both are part of the underlying pain that is inseparable from the mind-identified eoic state of consciousness. There are two levels to your pain, the pain that you create now and the pain from the past that can still live on in your mind and body. Seizing to create pain in the present and dissolving pain, past pain. This is what I want to talk to you about now. That is the first chapter of The Power of Now. I hope it was enlightened for you guys. And if you have any questions, please uh, leave a comment. Thank you.